Section 6 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Dennison, Portland, Maine. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. Section K. Payoffs to Watergate Defendants. Subsection 1. Early Payoff Discussions. As already noted, on June 20 or 21, Liddy met with LaRue and Mardian and told them of commitments made to provide bail, legal expenses, and family support funds for the Watergate defendants. Mardian said he also discussed Hunt's request to CRP for legal fees with CRP counsel Kenneth Parkinson and Paul O'Brien, and with William Bittman, Hunt's attorney. Mardian said he thought this request was blackmail and should not be paid. He said he had no other discussions regarding payment of money to the defendants. Dean, however, testified that Mardian suggested that the CIA assist regarding financial support for the defendants. This discussion concerning the CIA, Dean said, arose at a meeting among Dean, Mardian, and Mitchell, during which Mitchell suggested that Dean contact Ehrlichman and Haldeman to have the White House request CIA financial assistance for the defendants. Dean did meet with General Walters on June 26, June 27, and June 28, and asked Walters whether the CIA would provide financial assistance for bail, legal defense, and family support. Walters answered in the negative. Subsection 2. The Activities of Herbert Kalmbach and Tony Ulasiewicz on June 28, Dean testified he met with Mitchell, LaRue, and Mardian and informed them that the CIA would not provide financial assistance. According to Dean, LaRue then indicated that Stans had only limited cash, 70000 or 80000 and that much more would be needed. Dean testified that Mitchell asked him to obtain Haldeman's and Ehrlichman's approval to use Herbert Kalmbach to raise the necessary money. Mitchell denied being at this meeting and asked Dean to acquire Kalmbach's services. Dean testified he conveyed the suggestion to Haldeman and Ehrlichman, who told him to contact Kalmbach. During an April 14, 1973 meeting among the President, Ehrlichman, and Haldeman, Haldeman confirmed this fact, stating, quote, We, Ehrlichman and Haldeman, referred him, Dean, to Kalmbach, unquote. As a result, Dean called Kalmbach on June 28, 1972, and told him that Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell had requested that he come to Washington as quickly as possible. Kalmbach immediately flew to Washington and met with Dean on June 29. Dean knew Kalmbach did not wish to engage in further fundraising. In order to persuade Kalmbach to take this new assignment, Dean said he told Kalmbach all he knew respecting the break-in and suggested that the scandal might involve the president himself, although he did not know this for a fact. He told Kalmbach that Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell felt it very important that he raise the money and instructed Kalmbach to contact LaRue as to the amounts needed and the timing. Kalmbach confirmed that he met with Dean on June 29 and was asked by Dean to assume the fundraising assignment. 
He said Dean stressed that the assignment required absolute secrecy and indicated that if it became known, it might jeopardize the campaign. Kalmbach said that in giving him this assignment, Dean indicated he spoke for others, not only for himself. He said that although Dean did not use Haldeman's or Ehrlichman's name, he knew Dean reported to Ehrlichman and worked for Haldeman. And since Dean was counsel to the president, Kalmbach believed Dean had authority to ask him to undertake this task. Stans testified he met with Kalmbach on June 29 and gave him $75,000 after being informed that the money was needed for a special White House project. Stan said that Kalmbach stated he was asking for the money on, quote, high authority, unquote. According to both Kalmbach's and Stan's testimony, Kalmbach did not inform Stan's how the money would be used. Kalmbach distributed the money through Tony Ulasowicz, who had been hired originally by John Ehrlichman, for White House assignments. Ulasowicz was unable to deliver the money to either Douglas Caddy or Paul O'Brien, the first two contacts Kalmbach suggested, because of their reluctance to receive funds under the conditions set by Ulasowicz. The third contact, William Bittman, Hunt's attorney, after an initial rejection, agreed to accept $25,000 in cash in a brown envelope placed on a ledge in a telephone booth in his law office building. Ulasowicz wanted to deliver the full amount received from Stans, $75,000, but Bittman only wanted his initial fee of $25,000. The delivery of these funds was typical of the procedure Ulasowicz used on future occasions. He placed the envelope containing the $25,000 in the telephone booth and called Bittman to retrieve it. Bittman described the color of the suit he was wearing. Ulasowicz hid and watched until Bittman came out of the elevator, went to the booth, took the envelope, and went back into the elevator. Ulasowicz then left the building. After making this delivery to Bittman, Ulasowicz received a call from Kalmbach at another telephone booth. Kalmbach gave Ulasowicz a telephone number and told him to contact the, quote, writer, unquote, or the, quote, writer's wife, unquote, codenames for Hunt and Mrs. Hunt. Ulasowicz, using his alias Mr. Rivers, called Mrs. Hunt. He asked her what sums of money would be needed for the various defendants. Mrs. Hunt gave Ulasowicz figures for a five-month period that covered salaries for Hunt, McCord, and Liddy, $3,000 a month for each. Family support for Barker, Sturgis, Gonzalez, and Martinez, totaling about $14,000, and a separate $23,000 to Barker, which included, quote, $10,000 bail, $10,000 under the table, and $3,000 for other expenses, unquote. Mrs. Hunt also told Ulasowicz what would be required for legal fees. The lawyers for Hunt, McCord, Liddy, and Barker were each to receive $25,000, an additional $10,000 in legal fees for each of the remaining three defendants. Sturgis, Gonzalez, and Martinez was also required. These were only the initial requirements. The total sum Mrs. Hunt was requesting was in the vicinity of $400,000 to $450,000.
This, of course, was very much above the $75,000 Ulosewicz had received from Kalmbach. Ulosewicz kept Kalmbach informed respecting his discussions with Mrs. Hunt. Ulosewicz arranged with Mrs. Hunt the supply of $40,000 as a, quote, down payment, unquote. Ulosewicz placed the $40,000 for Mrs. Hunt in a locker at National Airport in Washington and telephoned her instructions to pick up the key to the locker, which would be scotch-taped under the ledge in a telephone booth at the airport. The key was placed exactly five minutes before Mrs. Hunt arrived to retrieve it. Again, Ulasiewicz assumed a position where he could observe the telephone booth unseen. He saw Mrs. Hunt, whose clothing was known to him, go to the telephone booth, retrieve the key, open the locker, and remove the money. Kalmbach came to Washington on July 19 to meet with Dean and LaRue and receive an additional amount of money from LaRue. According to Kalmbach, the amount was $40,000. LaRue, however, estimated $20,000. This money came from the $81,000 which Sloan and Stans had removed from Stans' safe and given to LaRue. Kalmbach testified that he took the $40,000 to New York and gave it to Ulasiewicz. After the July 19 meeting, Kalmbach became concerned over the clandestine nature of the funding operations, which he found distasteful. Dean, at that meeting, had asked Kalmbach to raise additional funds for the Watergate defendants, and Kalmbach had determined to talk to Ehrlichman about it. He wanted Ehrlichman's assurances as to the propriety of the assignment. Until that time, he had distributed funds given him by Stans or LaRue. Now he was being asked to seek an outside contributor. On July 26, Kalmbach traveled to Washington and met with Ehrlichman. He found Ehrlichman familiar with a fundraising assignment he had received from Dean. He explained to Ehrlichman that the secrecy of the operation and the various activities connected with it disturbed him. Kalmbach said he remembered vividly the meeting with Ehrlichman because, I looked at him and I said, John, I am looking right into your eyes. I know Jeannie and your family. You know Barbara and my family. You know that my family and my reputation mean everything to me, and it is just absolutely necessary, John, that you tell me, first, that John Dean has the authority to direct me in this assignment and that I am to go forward on it. Kalmbach said, Ehrlichman declared, Herb, John Dean does have the authority. It is proper, and you are to go forward. Ehrlichman also emphasized the need for the secrecy, stating that if the press were to learn of these activities, quote, they would have our heads in their laps, unquote. This satisfied Kalmbach. He left the meeting and later obtained an additional $30,000 from LaRue, which he transmitted to Ulasiewicz. Ehrlichman denied that he reassured Kalmbach, but did recall a conversation where secrecy was discussed and that Kalmbach told him, quote, Mr. Ulasiewicz was carrying money back and forth, unquote. Kalmbach said he returned to California and raised an additional $75,000 in cash from a private contributor, Thomas V. Jones, chairman of Northrop Corporation. Mr. Jones did not know the intended use of the money and apparently believed he was making a campaign contribution to the president. Kalmbach notified Ulasiewicz to come to California 
and meet him in front of the Airporter Inn near Kalmbach's office in Newport Beach. Kalmbach picked Ulasewicz up in his car. They drove a distance, parked, and Kalmbach gave the cash to Ulasewicz. Ulasewicz told the committee that while in California, he warned Kalmbach that, quote, something here is not kosher, unquote. That, quote, it's definitely not your ballgame, Mr. Kalmbach, unquote. He told Kalmbach that because of the increasing size of the money demands and other surrounding circumstances, it was time for both of them to get out of the project. Kalmbach testified that in mid-August, Dean and LaRue contacted him again, seeking additional funds. He decided, however, that he would not participate further in this assignment. Kalmbach told the committee that one factor that disturbed him and led him to quit was the newspaper stories about Watergate appearing in the press. On September 19, at LaRue's urgent request, Ulasewicz flew to Washington from New York and delivered the remaining funds Kalmbach had given him, $53,000 to Mrs. Hunt, $29,000 to LaRue. This terminated Ulasewicz's and Kalmbach's activities respecting the funding of the Watergate defendants. Kalmbach testified that after these funds were delivered by Ulasewicz to Mrs. Hunt and LaRue, he arranged a meeting with Dean and LaRue in Dean's office to reconcile with LaRue the amount of money distributed in the operation. He testified that the total amount received by him and dispersed through Ulasewicz was approximately $220,000. As soon as he had made the reconciliation with LaRue, Kalmbach destroyed his notes by shredding and burning them in Dean's office. LaRue took over the raising of funds and their distribution to the Watergate defendants. His contact became William Bittman, Hunt's attorney. However, because of the rising demands for money, it was soon necessary for LaRue to find additional funds. Subsection 3. The Hunt to Colson Telephone Call in late November 1972, Hunt called Colson to complain about the failure of the White House and CRP to meet their monetary commitments. Colson recorded the conversation, and a copy of its transcript is entered in the record as Exhibit Number 152. In this call, Hunt, among other things, stated, There is a great deal of unease and concern on the part of seven defendants but there is a great deal of financial expense that has not been covered and what we have been getting has been coming in very minor jibs and drabs and Parkinson, who has been the go-between with my attorney, doesn't seem to be very effective and we are now reaching a point of which these people have really got to... This is a long-haul thing and the stakes are very high and... I thought that you would want to know that this thing must not break apart for foolish reasons. All right, now we've set a deadline now for a close of business on the 25th of November for the resolution on the liquidation of everything that is outstanding. We are protecting guys who are really responsible, but now that's that. And of course, that's a continuing requirement. But at the same time, this is a two-way street. And as I said before, we think that now is the time when a move should be made, and surely the cheapest commodity available is money. These lawyers have not been paid. There are large sums of money outstanding. 
That's the principal thing. Living allowances which are due again on the 31st of this month, we want that stuff well in hand for some months in advance. I think these are all reasonable requests. They're all promised in advance and reaffirmed from time to time to my attorney and so forth. So in turn, I've been giving commitments to the people who look to me. Colson gave a copy of the tape recording to Dean. On November 15, Dean, Ehrlichman, and Haldeman met at Camp David to discuss the conversation and the increasing threatening demands transmitted through Hunt's lawyer to Paul O'Brien. Dean testified that his instructions from Haldeman and Ehrlichman were to meet with Mitchell, play the tape, and tell him to take care of these problems. Dean went to New York, played the tape for Mitchell, but received no indication from Mitchell that he would take any action. Subsection 4. The $350,000 White House Fund Prior to April 7, 1972, $350,000 in cash, previously kept in Sloan's safe at CRP, had been sent to the White House at Haldeman's request, purportedly for polling purposes. Strachan had received the money in Sloan's office and had taken it to the White House. Haldeman had arranged for a person he trusted, not identified with the White House, to keep the funds in a private bank account. According to Dean's testimony, in the first week of December, Mitchell called Dean and told him that a portion of this $350,000 must be used to meet the demands by Hunt and others. Mitchell indicated that the money used would be later replaced. Mitchell asked Dean to obtain Haldeman's approval for this action. Dean conveyed Mitchell's message to Haldeman. Although both Dean and Haldeman were reluctant to use this money, they had no alternative. Haldeman authorized Dean to inform Strachan to deliver the money to CRP. Strachan testified that, at first, he delivered only $40,000 of the $350,000 to LaRue. Haldeman confirmed this delivery when, in an April 14, 1973 meeting, with the president, he stated, quote, Then they got desperate for money, and being desperate for money took back, I think that it was $40,000. But this delivery, Dean testified, did not satisfy the demands that, quote, continued to be relayed by Mr. Bittman to Mr. O'Brien, who, in turn, would relay them to Mr. Mitchell, Mr. LaRue, and myself. I, in turn, would tell Haldeman and Ehrlichman of the demands, unquote. Dean testified that the demands reached the crescendo point shortly before the trial in early January. He said that O'Brien and LaRue came to his office and told him of the seriousness of the problem. Also, he said, Mitchell called him to instruct that once again he should ask Haldeman for the necessary funds. Dean said he called Haldeman, told him of Mitchell's request, and recommended that they deliver the entire balance of the $350,000 to LaRue. Haldeman acquiesced, according to Dean, and said, quote, send the entire damn bundle to them, but make sure we get a receipt for $350,000, Dean testified he called Strachan and told him to take the money to LaRue. In a meeting on April 14, 1973, Haldeman told the president that he had given the balance of the $350,000 to LaRue because, quote, they needed money, and we wanted to get rid of money, 
It seemed it was of mutual interest in working it out. Unquote. In an April 16, 1973 meeting, Haldeman told the President that his participation in payments to the defendants, in my viewpoint, wasn't to shut them up, but that is a hard case for anybody to believe, I suppose. Unquote. Subsection 5. Additional Pressures by Hunt Severe pressure from Hunt for additional funds came after the Watergate trial and prior to his sentence. Hunt testified that he requested his attorney, Mr. Bittman, to arrange a meeting between Hunt and O'Brien. Hunt told O'Brien when they met that his legal fees amounted to approximately $60,000 and that he was also concerned about the future of his family and desired to have the equivalent of two years' subsistence available to them before his incarceration. Although Hunt testified he did not intend any threat, he told the committee, And I put it to Mr. O'Brien that I had engaged as he might or might not know in other activities, which I believed I described as seamy activities for the White House. I do not believe that I specified them. However, I did make reference to them. The context of such references was that if anyone was to receive benefits at that time, in view of my long and loyal service, if not hazardous service, for the White House, that certainly I should receive priority consideration. Hunt said O'Brien suggested that he send a memorandum to Colson. Hunt did not want to write a memorandum, but thought he should contact Colson to explain his situation to him. Bittman contacted Colson's office and arranged for Colson's law partner, David Shapiro, to meet him on February 16, 1973. Hunt testified he told Shapiro substantially the same things he told O'Brien, including a reference to his, quote, seamy activities, unquote, for the White House. Hunt was very disappointed with the meeting since Shapiro did not appear sympathetic. Hunt said he made it clear to Shapiro that he wanted the money prior to the date of his sentence, so he could make, quote, prudent distribution of that among the members of my family, my dependents, taking care of insurance premiums and that sort of thing, that it would have to be delivered to me before I was in jail, unquote. Hunt testified that on March 20 or 21, just prior to his sentence, he received $75,000 in cash. LaRue admitted making the payment to Hunt after approval from Mitchell. Subsection 6. The March 21 Meeting in the Oval Office The indictment returned against Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Colson, Mitchell, Strachan, Mardian, and Parkinson alleges that the final payment to Hunt by LaRue was made on March 21, 1973, not March 20. Shortly after Dean, Haldeman and the President discussed Hunt's demands for money. According to the edited presidential transcripts, it now appears that the conversation Dean testified he had with the President on March 13, 1973, concerning Hunt's demand actually occurred on the morning of March 21. Although, in his testimony before the committee, Dean insisted that he correctly place this conversation on March 13. In this conversation, Dean said he told the President, quote, that there were money demands being made by the seven convicted defendants and that the sentencing of these individuals was not far off. It was during this conversation that Haldeman came into the office. After this brief interruption by Haldeman's coming in, 
but while he was still there, I told the President about the fact that there was no money to pay these individuals to meet their demands. He asked me how much it would cost. I told him that I could only make an estimate that it might be as high as $1 million or more. He told me that that was no problem, and he also looked over at Haldeman and repeated the same statement. He then asked me who was demanding the money, and I told him it was principally coming from Hunt through his attorney. The conversation then turned back to the question from the President regarding the money that was being paid to the defendants. He asked me how this was done. I told him I didn't know much about it, other than the fact that the money was laundered so it could not be traced, and then there were secret deliveries. I told him I was learning about things I had never known before, but the next time I would certainly be more knowledgeable. Unquote. Dean also testified that money matters were discussed during his morning meeting with the President on March 21. The edited transcript of the March 21 meeting demonstrates that Dean's recollection as set forth in his testimony of his principal meeting with the President concerning the hush money demands from the Watergate defendants was in a large part accurate. The following portions of the edited transcript supplied by the President are particularly illustrative. Dean. So that is it. That is the extent of the knowledge. So where are the soft spots on this? Well, first of all, there is the problem of the continued blackmail, which will not only go on now, but it will go on while these people are in prison, and it will compound the obstruction of justice situation. It will cost money. It is dangerous. People around here are not pros at this sort of thing. This is the sort of thing mafia people can do, washing money, getting clean money, and things like that. We just don't know about those things because we are not criminals and not used to dealing in that business. President, that's right. Dean, it is a tough thing to know how to do. President, maybe it takes a gang to do that. Dean, that's right. There is a real problem as to whether we could even do it. Plus, there is a real problem in raising money. Mitchell has been working on raising some money. He's one of the ones with the most to lose. But there is no denying the fact that the White House, in Ehrlichman, Haldeman, and Dean, are involved in some of the early money decisions. President, how much money do you need? Dean, I would say these people are going to cost a million dollars over the next two years. President, we could get that. On the money, if you need the money, you could get that. You could get a million dollars. You could get it in cash. I know where it could be gotten. It is not easy, but it could be done. But the question is, who the hell would handle it? Any ideas on that? Dean. That's right. Well, I think that is something that Mitchell ought to be charged with. President. I would think so, too. What do you think? You don't need a million right away. But you need a million. Is that right? Dean. That is right. President. You need it in cash, don't you? I am just thinking out loud here for a moment. Would you put that through the Cuban Committee? Dean, no. President, it is going to be checks, cash, money, etc. How if that ever comes out? Are you going to handle it? Is the Cuban Committee an obstruction of justice if they want to help? Dean, well, they have priests in it. President, would that give a little bit of a cover? Dean, that would give some for the Cubans and possibly Hunt. Then you've got Liddy. McCord is not accepting any money. So he's not a bought man right now. President. Okay. 
Go ahead. President. Just looking at the immediate problem, don't you think you have to handle Hunt's financial situation damn soon? Dean. I think that is... I talked to Mitchell about that last night, and, uh... President. It seems to me we have to keep the cap on the bottle that much, or we don't have any options. Dean. That's right. President. Either that or it all blows right now. Talking about your obstruction of justice, though, I don't see it. Dean. Well, I have been a conduit for information on taking care of people out there who are guilty of crimes. President. Oh, you mean like the blackmailers? Dean. The blackmailers, right. President. Well, I wonder if that part of it can't be... I wonder if that doesn't... Let me put it frankly. I wonder if that doesn't have to be continued. Let me put it this way. Let us suppose that you get the million bucks and you get the proper way to handle it. You could hold that side? Dean. Uh-huh. President. It would seem to me that would be worthwhile. Another way to do it, then Bob and John realizes this, is to continue to try to cut our losses. Now we have to take a look at that course of action. First, it is going to require approximately a million dollars to take care of the jackasses who are in jail. That could be arranged. But you realize that after we are gone, and assuming we can expend this money, then they are going to crack and it would be an unseemly story. Frankly, all the people aren't going to care that much. Dean, they're going to stonewall it as it now stands, accepting Hunt. That's why his threat. Haldeman, it's Hunt's opportunity. President, that's why for your immediate things you have no choice but to come up with the $120,000 or whatever it is, right? Dean, that's right. President, would you agree that that's the prime thing that you damn well better get that done? Dean, obviously he ought to be given some signal anyway. President, expletive deleted, get it. In a way that, who is going to talk to him? Colson? He is the one who is supposed to know him. At this meeting and at the afternoon meeting on March 21, other alternatives to paying hush money were considered, including certain public disclosures. During the afternoon meeting with regard to public disclosures, the participants perceived no viable, quote, option, unquote, which would not precipitate revelation of the cover-up. At the close of the afternoon March 21 meeting, the president, telling Dean, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman he had to leave, concluded with an unanswered question. President, what the hell does one disclose that isn't going to blow something? Subsection 7. Other Relevant Presidential Meetings Concerning Payoffs The following morning on March 22, 1973, Dean met with Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell in Haldeman's office. At the beginning of this meeting, Dean said, Ehrlichman asked Mitchell whether Hunt's money problem had been resolved. Dean said Mitchell replied he didn't think it was a problem. Mitchell denied this discussion took place. Ehrlichman recalls a conversation on March 22 when Dean, not Ehrlichman, asked Mitchell, without specific reference to Hunt, quote, is that matter taken care of, unquote. Mitchell's answer, Ehrlichman says, was something like, quote, I guess so, unquote. Dean's version is supported by the edited presidential transcripts. The transcripts show that in a meeting between the president and Dean in the Oval Office on April 16, 1973, 
Dean recalled that a few days after the March 21 meeting, he met with Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell. Dean said Ehrlichman asked him, quote, Well, is that problem with Hunt straightened out? Unquote. Dean said he told Ehrlichman to ask Mitchell, who in turn replied, quote, I think the problem is solved. Unquote. The conversation between the President and Dean continued. President, that's all? Dean, that's all he said? President, in other words, that was done at the Mitchell level. Dean, that's right. President, but you had knowledge. Haldeman had knowledge. Ehrlichman had knowledge. And I suppose I did that night. That assumes culpability on that, doesn't it? Also relevant is an April 17, 1973 conversation among the President, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman. President. Well, inaudible. I suppose then we should have cut, shut it off. Because later on, you met in your office, and Mitchell said, that was taken care of. Haldeman. The next day. Maybe I can find the date by that. President. Yeah, and Dean was there and said, what was, what about this money for Hunt? Wasn't Dean there? Haldeman. No, what happened was, Ehrlichman and Dean and Mitchell and I were in the office, in my office, and we were discussing other matters, and in the process of it, Mitchell said, he turned to Dean and said, let me raise another point. Ah, have you taken care of the other problem? The Hunt problem? But we all knew instantly what he meant. Dean kind of looked a little flustered and said, well, well, no, I uh, don't know where that is, or something. And Mitchell said, well, I guess it's taken care of, and so we assumed from that that Mitchell had taken care of it, and there was no further squeak out of it. So I now assume that Mitchell took care of it. Just prior to the above exchange, the president recalled his discussion with Dean on March 21 about the possibility that it might require $1 million to meet the blackmail demands from Watergate defendants. Haldeman, inaccurately, recalled to the president that he, the president, had told Dean, quote, once you start down the path with blackmail, it's constant escalation, unquote. Then Haldeman said, quote, they could jump and then say, yes, well, that was morally wrong. What you should have said is that blackmail is wrong, not that it's too costly, unquote. At the same meeting, the following colloquy took place between the president and Haldeman. Haldeman, we left it that we can't do anything about it anyway. We don't have any money, and it isn't a question to be directed here. This is something relates to Mitchell's problem. Ehrlichman has no problem with this thing, with Hunt. And, Ehrlichman said, expletive removed, quote, if you're going to get into blackmail, to hell with it, unquote. President. Good unintelligible. Thank God you were in there when it happened. But you remember the conversation. Haldeman. Yes, sir. President, I didn't tell him to go get the money, did I? Haldeman, no. Some of the participants involved in the payments to defendants, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Kalmbach, told the committee that payments were authorized not to buy the silence of the defendants, but solely to create a defense fund for the Watergate burglars, a fund which they said they believed was legitimate. And in April 14, 1973, meeting between the President and Haldeman, the following colloquy took place. Haldeman, that was the line they used around here, that we've got to have money for their legal fees and family. President, support, 
Well, I heard something about that at a much later time. President. And frankly, not knowing much about obstruction of justice, I thought it was perfectly proper. Would it be perfectly proper? Ehrlichman. The defense of the... President. Berrigans? Ehrlichman. The Chicago 7. President. The Chicago 7? Haldeman. They have a defense fund for everybody. This evidence must be considered in light of the contrary evidence presented above. As indicated, none of those who authorized or participated in the making of the payments to the Watergate defendants used their own money. To the contrary, they used campaign funds contributed by others who had no knowledge that their money was being employed to pay the legal fees of the Watergate defendants and to support their families. Also relevant is the clandestine nature of the payoffs which were made with $100 bills and placed in, quote, drops, unquote, by an unseen intermediary using a code name. Even the president recognized that the payoffs smacked of cover-up. In an April 27 meeting with Henry Peterson, the secret payments of money to the Watergate defendants were discussed. Henry Peterson, once you do it in a clandestine fashion, it takes on the elements President. Elements of a cover-up. Henry Peterson. That's right. And obstruction of justice. End of section 6.